Please bear with me as I'm recovering from a cold. I'm trying to preserve my voice because I have two messages to preach. In fact, when I got the phone call from your pastor originally, I didn't know what the assignment was. And then he said, oh, you you have to uh, preach two sermons. I go, what? I've got to do what? (laughs) And so, anyways, I'm just thankful that you have a pastor who labors regularly on your behalf. And uh, those of us that uh, pitch in once in a while appreciate, uh, more appreciate those that that labor regularly, even in our own church. So, I don't normally introduce a sermon with a newspaper article, but you'll understand why I do in a moment. The article is entitled, Too Injured When Plane Slams Into Hillside. It was written by a Los Angeles Times staff writer, and it's dated October 14, 1990. It reads, Two men were injured, one of them seriously, when their single-engine airplane lost power and crashed Saturday shortly after takeoff from Ogwal Dulce Air Park. The pilot and his passenger were airlifted by the sheriff's helicopter to Henry Mayo Newhall Memorial Hospital in Santa Clarita, both with head injuries suffered in a 2 p.m. crash, the Los Angeles County Sheriff's Department said. The plane, a Piper PA-28, lost power about one and a half miles south of the small airport in the eastern Santa Clarita Valley community of Agua Dulce. Sergeant Craig Peterson said, quote, the pilot tried to turn around and go back to the airport, but he crashed into the hillside, unquote, Peterson said. The plane flew over several homes in the rural area before it crashed near Darling and Pewter Roads. A witness, Jay Gardner, 13, said he was helping clean his father's boat when he saw that the plane was in trouble. Quote, it lost altitude and made a sweeping turn and slammed into the hillside, unquote, he said. Quote, I ran and told my mom to call 911. I really, I was really worried about those two guys, unquote. Jay said he and his brother, Evan, 11, rode their bicycles to the scene of the crash. Quote, it's not the kind of thing I like to see, unquote, he said. Quote, I'm a glider pilot myself, unquote. Peterson said the passenger was seriously injured. A spokeswoman for the hospital said the two victims asked that no information about their condition be released. Unquote. Thankfully, the two uh, passengers, the pilot and his passenger, survived. The reason I'm reading this to you this morning, one, is because of where we are. We're about a 35-minute drive from this air park, as some of you may already know. And the second reason is that I was the passenger in that aircraft. The pilot and I both worked together as teachers at a high school in North Long Beach. I need to make a correction, though. It mentions that the passenger was more severely injured. That's not true. The pilot was more severely injured because as he had his hands on the yoke and the crash took place, his face went right into the dash, and he suffered substantial fractures, hairline fractures in his skull. He's recovered. In fact, obviously, we both recovered. Both of us were Christians at the time, 
And when we left the airport in Fullerton, before we took off on the tarmac, we bowed our heads in prayer and asked God to preserve our lives, and indeed he did. In addition to the words spoken by us to the Lord that morning, on that fateful morning, another conversation took place in the emergency room at the hospital. And that that has to do with this morning's sermon. After they had brought us in, and I have a world of admiration for the L.A. County Sheriff's Rescue Team. They are so professional, and I would go before any commercial for the L.A. County Sheriff's and bear testimony to what they did. I could speak more about that, but I don't have as much time as as I could, or I I may. So as I was being examined, x-rayed, and so on, new clothes, gown, I was on a gurney in the emergency room. They brought us back, and my hand had suffered a puncture as I had lunged forward in the crash and punctured my hand with a toggle switch. And so when I was in the emergency room, the doctor, the surgeon, was stitching up my hand as I lay there, and I'm, I'm watching him. I'm two feet away from my hand here, and I'm admiring his work. I said, doctor, you do good work, you know. Didn't even feel the Novocaine go in, and he stitched me up. And then I said these words to him at the time. Spontaneously, I said, Doctor, no man is a fool who considers his end. I could have been killed on that hillside this morning, but God preserved us. He didn't respond to that comment. He just kept doing his work, but I know he heard me. And so the title of the message this morning is Consider Your End. And it will be looking at Luke chapter 13, verses 1 through 5, this morning. As you're turning to that passage, let me make this disclaimer. I'm, I'm well aware that there may be some of you here this morning, or some who may hear this message online, that may have been in a near-death experience, or perhaps you've known someone who has, or perhaps has even died suddenly. It'd be more, it's more common than you might think as we talk to each other and get to know each other's background. But people do die, and they die suddenly. Before we read the passage in Luke chapter 13, verses 1 through 5, let's first consider the context of this chapter. Luke is recording an event that likely occurred during the final months of our Lord's three-year public ministry. According to verse 22 of our chapter, Jesus was teaching through the cities and villages of Israel, moving from the region of Galilee, which was in the northern part of the country, towards Jerusalem, the capital in the southern region of Judea. His interaction and confrontations with the Jewish leaders were increasing in frequency and strength. And we read this in chapter 11, just two chapters before our own. Our passage at the beginning of Luke chapter 13 comes at the end of a lengthy talk by our Lord in chapter 12 that was addressed primarily to his disciples. And if you have a red-letter edition Bible as I do, you'll see that that chapter is just about all in red. So with that, let's read the passage, 
the five verses of Luke, beginning at verse one, of Luke chapter 13, beginning at verse one. And remember, this is God's revelation to us. There were present at that season some who told him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And Jesus answered and said to them, Do you suppose that these Galileans were worse sinners than all other Galileans because they suffered such things? I tell you, no, but unless you repent, you shall likewise perish. Or those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them, do you think that they were worse sinners than all others that dwelt in Jerusalem? I tell you, no, but unless you repent, you shall likewise perish perish. My goal in preaching this message this morning is to impress upon each of us, especially the unsaved, the need to consider our end, that is the end of our lives in this present world, and to be prepared for it knowing that it could come upon us suddenly or unexpectedly. As General Stonewall Jackson said to Captain John M. Bowden, following the Battle of Bull Run during the American Civil War, quote, Captain, my religious belief teaches me to feel as safe in battle as in bed. God has fixed the time for my death. I don't concern myself about that, but to be always ready, no matter when, it may overtake me. No matter when, it may overtake me. Dear ones, we all here this morning need to be so prepared. My method in preaching this morning will be first to give a brief exposition of the first five verses of Luke 13. Then I'd like to give you two general observations that are taught from that passage. And then finally, two personal applications that are in keeping with the theme of this sermon, namely to consider your end. Exposition. Let's see what the verses are telling us. This conversation, verses 1 through 5, is recorded nowhere else in the Gospels. Not in Matthew, not in Mark, and not in John. Also, nothing of these two tragic events, namely the Galileans who were executed by Pontius Pilate, or the Judeans who were crushed by the tower in Jerusalem, None of this is found in any of the extra-biblical histories of that time. So there's some question as to the details, what exactly took place. So let's examine each of these verses in this passage. Verse 1, I'll read it once again. There were present at that season some who told him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. Now, who is speaking to our Lord here? We don't know. It's likely none of the disciples. It's, it's possible that it was some of the Jewish leaders, because we know by this time, towards the end of our Lord's three-year ministry, the, 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 the hostility of the religious leaders was increasing, and the confrontations were taking place more frequently. So it's likely that it was, if not the Jewish leaders, those that had some kind of influence in the religious community. What were they saying? Well, they're describing an event, apparently, where there were some Galileans, 
that would be those from the northern part of the country who had lost their lives. And they had lost their lives at the hands of Pontius Pilate, the governor of Judea, which was in the south, the Roman governor. And so it was either before, during, or after they had offered sacrifice. Where the sacrifice took place, we don't know. It could have been in Jerusalem. It's not mentioned. In any event, their lives were taken, and the question arises, what, why, was, why did that take place? Why did they lose their lives? And again, we don't know for sure, but they could have been, as some of the historians tell us, a group called the Zealots. I don't know if you've heard of the Zealots that, occur, that, uh, that were uh, uh, in existence at that time. One of our Lord's disciples was named Simon the Zealot. I don't know if you remember that. The Zealots were a, a Jewish political party that strongly resisted the Roman occupation to the point of violence and even assassination. We don't know if this was who these people were. We do know, you don't need to turn there, but in Acts chapter 5, there is a person who is named that may have had a part in this or a leadership role. In Acts chapter 5, we have the second arrest of the apostles as they're beginning to preach the gospel in uh, an early church in, in Jerusalem. And... Um, the Jewish leaders there are adamant against them and even uh, ready to kill them. And so they're taken in custody and they're, they're um, challenged by the authorities. And um, there's a gentleman by the name of Gamaliel. You may have remembered this. Gamaliel was a, uh, a leader of the, the Pharisees and he had uh, some influence, obviously, by the, in, in his person and in his words, and he mentions uh, to the leaders after they excuse the apostles out of the room, he addresses them, if you remember, and he he brings up uh, instances where others have uh, caused problems, such as they expected the apostles were about to do. And he said in verse 36 of chapter 5, for some time ago, Thoidas rose up claiming to be somebody A number of men, about 400, joined him. He was slain, and all who obeyed him were scattered and came to nothing. And after this, Judas of Galilee, notice Galilee, rose up in the days of the census and drew away many people after him. He also perished, and all who obeyed him were dispersed. And so he uses this as an argument to say these men are likely going to come to an end in what they're teaching. So this is some a possible explanation as to who these were who lost their lives at the hands of Pilate. But why did they speak to Jesus? Going back to our verse 1 of chapter 13, why would they even bring this up? Again, we don't know. Could it have been that he, our Lord himself, was Galilean? He was from the north. All of his disciples were from Galilee, with the exception of Judas Iscariot, who was from Judea. Maybe they wanted to provoke an argument. They were always looking for him to say something that they could accuse him of. Maybe they brought in Pontius Pilate, the Roman governor of Judea. Maybe they, he wanted, they wanted him to say something against him. We really don't know. We don't know by the verse that we read, but we do know by the verses that, we, that are following. Let's read now verses 2 and 3. Verse 2 of Luke 13, and Jesus answered and said to them, do you suppose that these Galileans were worse sinners than all other Galileans because they suffered such things? I tell you, no, but unless you repent, 
you shall all likewise perish. Notice what our Lord says. Do you suppose? What was our Lord doing? He was reading their minds. He knew what they were thinking. They didn't say why they brought it up, but he says why they brought it up. Do you suppose that these Galileans were worse sinners? So note for a moment how great our God is, how great our Savior is. Time and time again in the New Testament, you see it, or the Gospels rather, you see him interacting with people. And in, the, in Luke itself, chapter 7, he read the mind of Simon the Pharisee when Simon invited him for a meal. And that's when the woman came, the prostitute who had been saved, and washes uh, our Lord's feet with her tears and anoints them. Our Lord knew what Simon was thinking. Simon didn't say anything about what he, what he was thinking. Or later on in the same uh, book of Luke, chapter 18, the rich young ruler. And there's other instances that I could bring up, but we don't have the time, but where our Lord knew what people were thinking. And sometimes you don't know what they're thinking until he gives them a response. And that's what we have here. Our Lord knew what they were thinking. And what, what, was, it, what was it that they were supposing or thinking? That these Galileans who suffered at the hands of Pilate had to have been worse sinners than the other Galileans. Notice that. They're not saying that these people are, are, are just bad in and of themselves, but they're saying they are the worst ones of the worst. In other words, suggesting that all the Galileans were questionable in their behavior. Oh, these are the worst, though. See? And so, but our, our Lord's masterful response is that he uses the, their words or their thoughts, which he reads in their minds, as an opportunity to confront them with their own spiritual need. He used the thoughts of these opponents to confront them with their own spiritual need, as if to say, unless you repent, you yourself will be judged for sin, as you suggest that these Galileans were for their sin. So he takes this opportunity to address them and how faithful our God, our Lord, our Jesus is to confront sinners with their sin. He came as the friend of sinners. We just sang that in a hymn a short time ago. And so his words were calculated to do good to those that he interacted with. He was always doing good and reaching out to lost sinners. And what was the most important thing that he told these men? He says, unless you repent. Repent. A prominent and key word used by our Lord during his gospel ministry. You might remember in the first chapter of Mark, where our Lord begins his ministry, in chapter 1 and verse 16 it says, I'm sorry, verse 14, it says, Jesus came to Galilee preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. The first directive he gives those he preaches to is to repent, to repent. And this command or injunction is continued as you read through the gospels and into the book of Acts as the apostles preached both in Jerusalem and Samaria and to the uttermost parts of the world. Repent is a word that we hear not often enough in our churches at large. 
What does it mean? As some of you might know, the Greek word metanoio means to think differently or afterwards to reconsider. To think differently or afterwards to reconsider. That is to change one's mind. And it carries with it the feeling of regret or guilt. Notice that Jesus taught this universal need to repent where he says, you will shall all likewise perish. That is, those of you that do not likewise repent will likewise perish. Let's go on with the last two verses of our passage, verse 4 and 5. Our Lord continues, Or those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them, do you think that they were worse sinners than all other men who dwelt in Jerusalem? I tell you no, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. You notice that our Lord responds with his own example of an untimely and tragic death. They brought up the Galileans. He brings up those that lived in Jerusalem. How this tragedy occurred, we don't know. But where it happened, we do. At the end of verse 4, it says, the men who dwelt in Jerusalem. So the tower that fell was likely part of or connected to the pool of Siloam in the city of Jerusalem, which we read about in John chapter 9. We also see how our Lord answers the previous example in verse 1 of the Galileans, who were from the northern part of the country, by this event that occurred in Jerusalem in the south, or as has been said, from Dan to Beersheba. You may have heard that expression, Dan being in the north, Beersheba in the south of Israel. So all would have needed to repent in the land. And remember, the Jews were God's chosen people. And if you most likely already know, they counted themselves favored as a result of that. And yet our Lord says, nevertheless, you must repent. So being the favored people of God as they were, do not prepare them for life after death. Finally, at the end of verse 5, our Lord repeats the injunction and the command, quote, unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Our Lord never spoke an idle word, and here he speaks a warning twice. And we need to take note of that. So having looked at the scriptures, verse by verse, or the verses one by one. Let's turn now to some general observations. I have two general observations that we can draw from this passage. Number one, God occasionally kills sinners during this life. God occasionally kills sinners during this life. I'm reminded of a of a sermon titled by Tom Lyon. I don't know if you, I, you all know who Tom Lyon is. He had a sermon entitled, The God of the Bible Kills People. Typical Tom Lyon. Short, direct. But it is true. God occasionally, and I use to emphasize the word occasionally, kills sinners during this life. The Genesis flood, chapter 7. Many sinners lost their lives, didn't expect to lose their lives or die. Sodom and Gomorrah, Genesis chapter 19. God 
destroyed human life. In the New Testament, King Agrippa I, in in Acts chapter 12, he was sitting on his throne and the people are shouting out, the voice of a God and not a man. And it says, he did not give glory to God, so God struck him with worms and he gave up his spirit, even while on the throne. And who could forget professing Christians, Ananias and Sapphira, in Acts chapter 5, who lied to the Holy Spirit by misrepresenting what they had done as a benevolence gift. They lied to the apostles, and each of them lost their lives. And dare I bring up the passage in 1 Corinthians gives us the rules on how to honor the Lord's Supper. And those who did not honor the Lord's Supper, some got sick and some died. God occasionally kills people during this life. The second general observation, God in his long suffering more often postpones punishing sinners until the afterlife. God in his long suffering more often postpones punishing sinners until the afterlife. Do you remember the psalmist Asaph in Psalm 73, how he was grieved and upset because the wicked, the prosperous wicked were not being judged? Turn with me, if you will, to uh, Psalm 73, and we'll take a look at those uh, verses. Psalm 73. Well, not, we're not going to read a whole lot, just a few selected verses here. Asaph, a psalmist, who wrote many psalms, at least 11 or 12 psalms. But notice in verse 3 through 5, Asaph writes this, Psalm 73, verse 3. For I was envious of the boastful when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For there are no pains or pains in their death, but their strength is firm. They are not in trouble as other men, nor are they plagued like other men. But notice in verse 4, there are no pains in their death. So, He's grieved to see that justice has not been met. And these men, or whoever they are, go on. But notice further on in the chapter, verse, verses 17 through 19, where we hear the end of the story. He says, Until I went into the sanctuary of God, then I understood their end. When he came into the house of God's worship and was able to enter into God's perspective of how things are, of what reality is. Did you know that, dear ones? When you come to this place and you're being taught, this is reality, and what goes on out there is not the real thing, and it's going away. When he came into the house of God or the sanctuary of God, then he understood their end. Surely you set them in slippery places, You cast them down to destruction, and how they are brought to desolation in a moment, they are utterly consumed with terrors. 
That's the end of the story for those that reject God and refuse to bow to his rule and reign. And so it is, it is indeed uh, a truth that God in his long-suffering often postpones punishing sinners until the afterlife. Now, having looked at some general observations, let's focus in now with what time we have left to personal applications. There's two of them. The first one is this. We are reluctant to consider our own end in this world. We are reluctant to consider our own end in this world. My own thoughts on the morning of my plane crash. I knew I was going to be in an airplane, but I didn't think anything about getting injured or involved in a, in a, a crash of all things. I certainly wouldn't have gone on it if I had known that. I was so confident that when my wife said to me, make sure you're wearing your seatbelt, and I said to her, seatbelt? I mean, I've been involved in a plane crash. What good will that do? As it turned out, we did have a lap belt. Had we had, we had a shoulder uh, belt, it would have preserved some of our safety because we lunged forward when the crash took place. But it was an older plane, I think 1971-72 vintage. <clears throat> and then also I wanted to take my oldest daughter, Annie. She was about eight years old. I wanted to take her and go along, and she wanted to go. Linda said, she, let's put it this way, uh, she discouraged me from taking Annie. And that was why. Listen to your wives, husband. Okay? They have intuition. Sometimes they, things they come up with, uh, we need to pay close attention to many things. So I, have no, I had no thought of any danger that day. We are reluctant to consider our own end in this world. The Jews who confronted our Lord in our passage, Luke chapter 13, they're talking about these Galileans over here, and this is what happened to them. What does our Lord say? He points the finger to them, unless you repent, you see. And so the Jews themselves had no idea, nor did the Galileans or those in Jerusalem had any idea that they would end their lives. D.A. Carson, the noted evangelical scholar, said this, quote, Unless the Lord Jesus comes back first, we are all going to die. Yet for various reasons, we live in a culture that focuses on the present, on the unending now. So when death arrives, as it inevitably does, it almost always seems too early. But considering how often the Bible looks at death squarely and demands that we reflect on the afterlife, such a stance is at best short-sighted and at worst dangerous, unquote. Notice what he says here. Such a view, not considering your own end of this world, is at best short-sighted and at worst dangerous. It's short-sighted for the Christian, but it's dangerous for the unbeliever. For the Christian, how often do we think about our own end in this world? Some of you may have. Some of you that have, may have been around those that have suffered death or maybe even now. And you're more sensitive and aware of it. We live in a culture that is kind of desensitized from what death is. It's like something that happens 
in a rest home or some in a hospital. And so a, a whole sermon could be preached just on this alone. When was the last time you heard a Bible study or a sermon series on dying, and not just for the terminal, but for those of any age? It's something that we don't hear much about, and, and I've been a church member for over 40 years, and I haven't heard it yet. Dear Christian, in the same way that we were never meant to live out our human existence by remaining in our mother's womb, so we were not meant to live out our existence by remaining in this present world. Now, listen to this. Our physical death, dear Christian, commences or begins the eternal state for which we were created and in which we who are Christians are ultimately fulfilled as human beings. How earthbound we all are, even as Christians we are. Our physical death commences the eternal state for which we were created and in which we who are Christians are ultimately fulfilled as human beings. That's why the Apostle Paul could confidently write, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Those were not empty words, dear ones. He meant that from the bottom of his heart. For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. That's in Philippians chapter 1 and verse 21. Do you share this view, dear Christian? We just sang a hymn earlier, hymn 142. Let me read to you part of the last stanza. Quote, We alas forget too often what a friend we have above. But when home our souls are brought, we will love thee as we ought, as Mario so faithfully reminded us of our home. Where is our real home? But notice it also says in that stanza, a friend we have, where? Above, the glorified Lord Jesus Christ in glory in heaven. And you know, he wants you to be with him, dear Christian. The night before he was arrested, And crucified, in John chapter 17, he prayed to his father. In John 17, verse 24, he prays to the father, Lord, I pray that those whom you have given me will be where I am, that they might behold my glory, which you gave me before the world began. The Lord wants you to be with him, or wants us to be with him, more than we want to be with him. We forget too often what a friend we have above, but when home our souls are brought, we will love thee as as we ought. Dear Christian, are you afraid to die? I didn't say, are you afraid of dying? I said, are you afraid to die? Indeed, death is a fearful thing. There are biblical reasons to fear death for the Christian But for the Christian, there are also reasons to not fear death. Personally, I find great comfort in knowing that my Savior will be with me when it happens. He has promised me, he's promised Richard, 
Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Psalm 23. And speaking about my plane crash, God was pleased to greatly comfort me as I recovered in the hospital following my plane crash. And perhaps some of you have also experienced such encouragements by our Lord in some time, times of trial. But I did. I've never felt such confidence and peace with my Savior before or since that time. And this was 33 years ago. So I want to share with you, dear ones, especially those of you that fear death, that you have a Savior who loves you. He's going to be with you. And he certainly taught me during that experience in a very tangible way that he's there and he's not going away. And there are some who in their moments of death may not have that confidence, but he's still there. He's not going to leave you. He has promised. You mean too much to him for him to leave you on your own. So be encouraged. So the first, the first personal application is we are reluctant to consider our own end of this world. But D.A. Carson also stated that not considering one's death can not only be short-sighted, but at worst can also be dangerous. And here I must address myself to the unsaved that are either here this morning or who may hear this message. And here's your second point of application. Number two, the unbeliever desperately needs to consider his or her own end in this world. Again, the unbeliever desperately needs to consider his or her own end in this world. This is why I spoke the words I spoke to the the surgeon. I said, no man is a fool who considers his end because (laughs) I knew I could have died off that hillside. There was no theory there. It could have really happened. In fact, when the, these aren't on my notes, but I'll tell you this anyways. When the FAA inspector came to interview me in my hospital, he was standing at the foot of my bed. And he said to me, Mr. Aragon, are you aware that very few people survive a small plane crash? And I says, yes, I appreciate hearing that. But and I reminded or told him that me and the pilot were Christians and we prayed before we took off in Fullerton and God answered our prayers. And it was a pleasant surprise for him to say, you know, Mr. Aragon, I'm a Christian as well. I understand what you're telling me. So this is real. We need to consider our end. And do you think, dear one, that you're immune from sudden death? Do you think that all the safety precautions you take in your lives is going to protect you from sudden death? In 1 Kings chapter 22, King Ahab disguised himself in battle so that the enemy, the Syrians, would not know who he was. I don't know if you remember this story. And then the Bible says that one of the Syrian soldiers shot an arrow randomly, and it pierced between his armor on his breastplate on the side by his his shoulder. He took every precaution he could to protect himself, and yet that arrow shot at random, at random, found its mark. No, we can't prevent God's work if he decides to take us. Look at the sad to say the tragic loss of life of children, of all people, children in our public and private schools, private school, PCA school. 
And none of those youngsters or their families thought that was going to happen that day. Are you a child being homeschooled? Do you think being homeschooled will protect you if God decides to take your life? One of the families in our church that are heavily involved in homeschooling, the wife is very involved, takes a leadership role, we're driving home from vacation on Highway 5 in South Orange, Southeast Orange County, and we're rear-ended at high speed by a girl who was looking at her cell phone. And the family suffered substantial injuries. Thankfully, they recovered, all of them. And the oldest son just recently made a profession of faith, but he mentioned in his testimony that that car crash had a lot to do with him considering the gospel. We really don't know how much time is left in our life. And dear unbeliever, you don't know yourself. James 4.14 says, Whereas you do not know what will happen tomorrow, for what is your life? It is even a vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes away. James 4.14 Whereas you do not know what will happen tomorrow. Dear unbeliever, you desperately need to consider your own end in this world. In Hebrews chapter 9 it reads, And it is appointed for men to die once, but after this the judgment. Hebrews 9.27 You will have to answer to God for your sins, and your own conscience tells you so. R.C. Sproul explained your case quite simply with these words, quote, God is a holy God, and if God is holy and you are not, you have a serious problem. How do you expect, as an unholy person, to stand before a holy God in judgment? You are manifestly unprepared and unequipped. And obviously, what you need and what I need is a Savior. How do you expect, as an unholy person, to stand before a holy God in judgment? Doesn't that make sense? That what you and what we all need is a Savior? In closing, let me mention these words to the unbeliever. Dear one, today you have been strongly challenged, and rightfully so. But let me finish with a word of encouragement, for that's what the gospel is. It's good news. God the Son came into this world in order to save sinners just like you. And Jesus Christ, the God-man, calls upon you today to consider your end in this world, to repent of your sins, and to place your trust in the death of Jesus Christ as the payment for all your sins. Jesus is willing to save you. That's why he came, and that's why we sang, and why it's in the scriptures that he is the friend of sinners. Please, 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 Heed the warning voiced by our Lord in verses 3 and 5 of our text. Twice he warned, unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. And do it today. Amen.